Today's podcast is brought to you by PNC, supporting early education, racial and social justice, and economic development through programming within the communities we serve. I'm your host, Nick DeCorville. Today, my guest is Brian Armanti, a writer and anthropologist from the Netherlands. With much of his work being in the field of literature and poetry, his writings can be found in various publications, including the Arlington Literary Journal, Voices from the Fierce and Tangible World, as well as our own Kaleidoscope magazine. In addition to being shortlisted for both the Hippocrates Open Category Prize, as well as the Givel Press Oscar Wilde Award, Monty also acts as editor for Amsterdam Quarterly, while also serving as a member of the Amsterdam Netherlands Friends Monthly Meeting, the Authors Guild, and the Communal Studies Association. But first, before we get to the interview, here's Brian Armonti's reading of the poem, The Hotel Reading. Enjoy. The Hotel Reading by Brian Armonti. No, this can't be it, I think, as I look at the white wheelchair logo spray-painted on the hotel's black brick wall, in the back, by the loading dock, just below a camera and a speaker. But then I remember I live in a land where lifts and ramps are optional at historic public front entrances, where wheelchairs are still loaded like freight onto trains never level with platforms, pushed up or down metal ramps by porters who must be requested hours in advance. I pushed the button and a man asked who I am and what my business is. I tell him I've come to read for a group on the fourth floor. I give him their name, which he's never heard, but still he sends someone to let me in. A minute later, a cook in a white apron appears on the loading dock holding a silver remote control. He lowers the metal lift to street height so I can roll in. As I reach out to push the up button, he says, no, don't touch. I control everything with this, waving the remote. Once up on the loading dock, he rolls me through a supply room stacked with brown cardboard boxes and white china bowls, plates, and cups. Then past the kitchen steel pots and pans and rising steam, blue gas jets at eye level, as I think for a moment of Billie Holiday in the 50s, until my front wheel suddenly stopped, dead against a raised doorway lintel, catapulting my bag out of my lap with a thud onto a hard tile floor, and me up and out of my chair where I stand momentarily weightless on the footrests in midair, just before the point of no return, until I grab the armrest and pull myself back down and into my seat again. Finally, inside the hotel lobby, there's no one in reception to greet me or to direct me upstairs to the room where I am to read. I ring the number on my mobile for the e email invitation. A woman comes down and leads me to a lift and then to a hot room on the top floor, a balcony bar, where I unpack at the front table and discover two dented spines in the ten books I brought to sign. Better these than mine, I think. Too shaken and warm to be bothered about what or how I will read. And now here's our interview with Brian Armonti. So yeah, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. You've been in Cleveland for a couple of days now? Um, I arrived last Tuesday, yeah. Are you in town to help promote your book? 
Yes, and to see some of my friends and to see some of the people who have helped me with Amsterdam quarterly. That was uh, Diane that brought me to the facility UBS today. And uh, yeah, she's an artist and a poet, and she's contributed to several issues. Uh, is this your first time in the Cleveland area? No, I was born and raised in Cleveland. I was born in St. John's Hospital, and I attended uh, school through high school in Lakewood. When was so? When did you first move to the Netherlands? Uh, in July of 1993. So while doing a little bit of research for this interview, I seem to have noticed that you tend to avoid social media. I didn't see you on Twitter. That could be an interesting decision for a writer to make, um, especially when it comes to promoting themselves. Uh, is there a particular reason that you're not using social media? Well, I'm not very good sometimes at blowing my own horn. Um, I'm more of the type of writer that enjoys putting it on the page and sharing it with my friends, especially in the writers group in Amsterdam. But I do publish a magazine so that. Uh, forces me to be a lot more extroverted than I would be normally. Uh, also, about as far as social media is concerned, since I am working with a literary magazine and other people's work, I'm a little bit concerned about the lack of security on some platforms they've been hacked, and I wouldn't want my people, the contributors' uh, data, to be uh, hacked also. When did you start writing, and what initially inspired you to write? Well, someone came to Lakewood High School to give a reading when I was a sophomore. I guess that would be 1974. And as he was reading his poetry, I had sort of a chorus line moment when I thought, I can do that, you know, just exactly what he's doing. So I put a pen to paper and started submitting work when I was uh, 17. Were you able to get published when you were around 17, or when was the first time you got published? 17 or 18. Do you remember the uh, publication that you were published in? Well, one was the literary magazine at my high school, and another one was the international magazine for a church. Uh, so let's yeah. So let's move a little bit forward. Uh, while researching, I did notice that you did obtain your PhD um, in anthropology from Tilburg University. Um, you obtained your Bachelor of Arts in English from the University of California, and your MA in English and Writing from Brown University. Um, so, with such an academic career, who were some of your personal influence during these studies? Well, at Berkeley, it was certainly Tom Gunn and Naomi Shihab Nye. From those two, I learned the importance of social engagement and also the use of how to construct a poetic line. It's not just description. It has to come with a certain rhythm or meter. So that was what I learned from those two people. At Brown, uh, from Philip Levine, I learned to interrogate every word in the poem to see if it was necessary. So he put me on the right path towards being an editor, I guess. So we mentioned some of your influences while you were at university. What writers have helped inspire you outside of the university? Well, definitely Frank O'Hara and the New York School of Poets. Uh, they have the most, how shall I say, kinetic type of poetry. Now I do this, now I do that. Media is included, uh, celebrity is included in their work. So they're poets that are aware of, they're not just, they're not nature poets, basically. I wouldn't, I've written a few nature poems, but mostly mine are about people. So you mentioned in another interview that I was listening to that you developed MS at 17 and received the diagnosis at 49. This seems like a long, this seems like a bit of a time period to go without a diagnosis. Um, what was this period like for you during this time? And why were you able to get the diagnosis? 
Well, let's start with the, the reason I couldn't get a diagnosis in the beginning. I believe that MRI technology came in later. I was born in 1957, so I was 17 in 1975. I believe that the only thing they had available then were x-rays. And to be able to detect IMS, you really do need an MRI, MRI equipment uh, to see the holes or the burnt out circuits. They told me the ones I would become sick and then I wouldn't be able to walk or I would be very tired or I couldn't concentrate. So as a result, when I was at school and college, I did all of my work for my papers as soon as I could when I felt good because I knew I was going to have some bad days. But nobody could tell me why the bad, why I was having the bad days. And even some of them told me, it's all in your head, right? Well, they were right. It was in my head. I had all these scars in my brain that were causing problems with speech and my walk, my gait, and having a feeling just so tired all the time for somebody that was eating properly and exercising properly. So I didn't really understand what was going on for decades. So there would be periods of sort of transitioning between getting sick and then feeling fine for... It would come and go. And uh, just as soon as they thought they were getting on the track of what it was that was bothering me, it would go away. And it would go away for months or sometimes years at a time that I wouldn't have another, uh, what do you call it, a episode. So during a period where you were having an episode, was there anything the doctors were thinking? Or was there anything that they were more leaning towards? Or was it most of the time this is in your head? Well, they did a spinal tap several times. And they thought that they saw something in the fluid that wasn't uh, normal, but it never stayed there very long. It would either clear up or it wasn't detected by another test. They thought it might be my back, so they x-rayed my back. And the I don't have anything wrong with my back. I have some neck, uh, some neck, we call them barefuls in Dutch, I have discs. We have some neck discs that are slightly out of place from when I was a paper boy, but they could never really find anything definitive that would explain what was going wrong with me. So if you don't mind me asking, did you experience a relapse in any of that period? And if so, what was that experience like? And then what was the transitioning period for you like after? Mm -hmm. Well, um, a relapse for me would usually mean that I would have trouble walking. I would have a burning sensation either in my legs or my back or my feet. And um, I would have to just draw the shades in the room, get a cold uh, wash uh, cloth and put it over my head and lay down on the cold linoleum floor of my dormitory. That was the only way I could deal with it. And that would be my situation for sometimes a week at a time. So as I said, if I knew what the assignments were for a class, I would do them as soon as possible, write the papers ahead of time. And so that if I got taken out for a while, I could still stay in school because I was a little bit ahead of the game. Was there any support system you had during your college years outside of were the doctors that were kind of guesstimating or was there anyone that was kind of able to not necessarily help you through it in a medical sense but more on like just a, like a level of understanding no unfortunately there wasn't i just sort of kept to myself because i thought it was uh, i was always a very odd boy growing up so I just figured, okay, that's just another aspect of my personality or my, like the picture of my health. So I just, as I said, would just retreat from the world for a period while these things were happening. Were you able, to, uh, during this time, were you able to sort of keep a level of communication open with your professors or fellow colleagues? Like, 
Um, you mentioned preparing for it, getting your work done ahead of time. Would you just contact them and say, I feel this is coming on. I'm going to have to disappear for a moment of time. Here's my work. I'll be back. Yes, especially at Berkeley, people were very understanding. Uh, Professor Breslin, for example, I took his course on New York School of Poetry, and I tell him, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to be able to make your lecture next week. And I get the notes from somebody, and he'd say, sure. They have a lot of understanding for me, even though I wasn't formally diagnosed with any particular malady. So That's excellent. Yeah, there's it, when it comes to, especially the university, it's always up to the professor. So I've certainly met some in my time where you better be in person, you better be there as soon as the bell starts or what have you, and no excuses. So it's great to hear that they were supportive in that regard. Well, I was one of the students that if I was there, I was on. I was really into the class. I participated all the time. So they could cut me a little bit of slack if I wasn't feeling well, especially if I had an undiagnosed illness. So that wasn't difficult at Berkeley now. Excellent. Um, so let's go back to your writing process a little bit. Um, in what ways has MS affected your writing process? And would you mind walking us through how you go about writing both before and after your diagnosis? Well, before my diagnosis, I try to push myself to do something, even if I didn't feel good. And uh, that was not always very productive, although I got some very well descriptive, uh, very good descriptions of uh, what we were talking about, the uh, shortfall again, I guess in English that is uh, a relapse. Uh, because I remember going to, I had another magazine before I started my current one, I remember going to pick up the magazines in Oakland and I was just feeling so enormously warm and it wasn't a hot day. And I wrote down how I felt and how it was difficult walking, uh, just taking steps. And that was in uh, 1983, it was. So that was uh, quite a long time uh, before I actually had the big episode relapse where in 2008 I was hospitalized for three years and I wasn't seeing a doctor at the time for specific illnesses I was just going in when I didn't feel well so yeah it's uh, I could only as far as writing was concerned I could write about the pain there'd be big gaps in my journal and uh, I would try to type things up I was a hideous typist so uh, that didn't work out so well. Now, where I am now as a writer and editor, I know that if I'm having a bad day that I need to step away from the keyboard, that I can't force it. I do keep a journal next to my bed so that if I hear a couple lines in my sleep or wake up, I write them down right away so I won't forget them by the time I wake up in the morning. Um, I get as much of my magazine done as possible when I'm feeling well also, but through the therapy I've had, I know that I get four episodes of 45 minutes a day to work, and that's pretty much it. So if I push myself beyond that, I'm gonna, it's guaranteed I'm gonna have a bad day the next day or soon thereafter. So that's the difference between the way I used to write before. I used to try to force myself and always record things. And now I've learned to be a little bit nicer to myself and plan ahead more, especially if I'm dealing with other people's writing. Yeah, I was about to, I was going to ask, and you kind of segued into it a little bit. So you've been acting as editor for numerous magazines, just about as long as you've been a writer. Um, I was going to ask, is that editing process any different for you? Well, I've had to create, I've had to build up strategies so I can handle the workflow. And I learned that also from, it's called the Oakstrap. That's the rehabilitation center that I go to in Utrecht once a week for my hydrotherapy. 
And they taught me that I have to have compensating strategies. So if I can't do one thing, there's maybe another task I could do. Um, I do know that when these submissions come in during reading periods, and I'll start reading in April for the next issue called On the Move. I have to read the, the submissions as they come in, and I put them into a spreadsheet with all the identifying information. I also write my comments down on what I think of the piece or pieces. And then I assigned it a color to the star chart, uh, bright blue for the hot, hottest ones, white for the really good ones, yellow for the kind of middle of the road, orange and then red. And so I've got a visual as well as a yeah, color guide and words that I have to help me remember what the piece is like and what I thought about. Throughout this whole sort of whole ordeal, who hasn't been your biggest support system? Well, people such as Diane, even though she lives in Ohio, I call her um, at the weekend and we stay in touch and we stay in touch sometimes more frequently via email. Um, I have my writers group uh, to whom I dedicated the book actually. For the Amsterdam Quarterly Writers Group and my three graces, Nani, Augustine, Diane Kellogg, and Meryl Stratford. And I met those three women at the Atlantic Center for the Arts in uh, 2013 and 2014 when we studied with Richard Blanco and Carolyn Fouché. So they've always been there for me. They've read this, the entire manuscript for this book and given me feedback. So has the Amsterdam Writers Group that meets once a month. So I have, as far as literature is concerned, a very good support network. Concerning on the level, about how long was from conception to publication? How long would you say the process was? Uh, I started writing the first poems in the book in 2013 when an uh, editor uh, asked me, Jeffrey uh, Schultz from uh, Greenwald said, well, you've got some really good poems about your family here, but what about your MS? There's no poems about your MS. So that's January 2013. So everything in here is from January 2013 to about July 2021. Uh -huh. So is there a plan? Um, have you already started working on the next one, or is there plans for more? Yes, the next book is going to be called Histories, and it's about my family history and also about historical figures or the history that I've witnessed as a uh, as a radio reporter. Fascinating. Would you mind, um, if you don't mind, would you mind giving us um, an example of sort of one of the stories from working as a radio editor? Well. It was interesting in San Francisco because people definitely have opinions there and they express them <laughs> on the street. And so going to events, I would make sure I had the sound guy with me to even take in the atmosphere of people maybe chanting outside of a school board meeting to protest something or uh, other people like ACT UP doing a die-in on the street on the Castro Street blocking the traffic. So those are things that are, are very vivid in my mind. They come to mind right away. Now, uh, the idea of studying historical figures is also seems a bit interesting as well. Where did you get the idea for that? And then could you provide an example of maybe one of the historical figures that you plan on taking an approach to in your book? Well, uh, some of them that I've already written about are Michel Foucault, for example, and when he came to California to lecture, there was an earthquake. And then I wrote about his theory of how, um, I guess it's called uh, how epistemology develops, how you go from one era to another. And it's not just a gradual thing, but a sudden break. So I used the metaphor of the earthquake to show how he thinks uh, human knowledge uh, increases. Uh, or changes, how fads or approaches to problems change over time by era. As of an interview in 2017, you mentioned sometimes needing a, a wheelchair since around that time. Um, how has the situation changed for you since? 
Well, I need it even more today. I used to be able to walk in town with my rollator, we call it in, in Dutch. That's a walker with wheels and a basket in the front. So I would get around town. In fact, when I first got it, my uh, my uh, partner, Winford, would complain, you're going too fast, slow down, because it was a really liberating thing for me. And uh, with time, my gait became slower and a little less sure. And my doctor just told me, if you ever leave the town or have to go more than 150 meters one way or another, you need to call it disabled cab. So as I said, there's one set of cabs for within the province of Utrecht or locally, and then there's another one for the entire country if you need to go somewhere. Like if I want to go up to Groningen, which is way up in the northern part of the of the country, I'm in the central part in Utrecht. So fascinating. Um, I actually, yeah, I actually have some questions about the kind of the differences between healthcare in America and healthcare in the Netherlands. Um, but I kind of wanted to get to those at a later time. Funny enough, before this one, I hadn't realized how much time you had spent in Cleveland already. Um, but you mentioned not liking the snow in um, your story, My Calling. Yet at mm. the same time, you chose Rhode Island for your MA. So I was going to ask how dealing with the snow was, but it seems you've already kind of grown accustomed to the snow. Well, it's it's funny. Um, the snow actually deadens the pain in my legs. The colder it gets, and outside, the more comfortable I am. So I didn't like the snow when I had a car in Massachusetts, and I always had to dig my car out to get to work. But I figured out that it was just easier and faster to leave the car snowed in in my drive and just walk to the high school where I taught there. So that's one of the reasons I hated the snow, because while I was shoveling it, I could think of my friends in California. And where I eventually moved, I went back to California. I had an apartment at, uh, uh, at the beach, at Sunset Beach. So uh, didn't have to worry about snow there. Transferred to work. So, but, and again, my situation with mobility really didn't start until about 2007, 2008. And I went from using a cane from 2007 to about 2013 or 14, then a later from 2013 to about 2017, 18. And now, I just know that if I want to be able to do things and think, I have to sit in my chair because it just takes too much energy and too much concentration to keep myself upright until the later I get somewhere. Versus the wheelchair is pretty sweet, actually. I went to Italy with it, uh, fell out of it, and did a double backflip. I was never able to do in high school PE for May there. No injuries. My sister was with me and she was like, Oh, you're gonna you're gonna have you're gonna have bruises tomorrow, you're gonna have scratches. I said, No, I'm fine. No, nothing happened. nothing bad happens to me in this chair or anything bad. So that's how I feel about it. That's fantastic. So so the cold can actually um help eliminate some of the pain. So mm -hmm. would it be the opposite then? Because too much heat kind of yeah. I have a poem about that too. It's the poem related to uh, the cover, uh, the cover art here that I have from Kandinsky about uh, yellow, red, and blue. Now, if I can find that for you, I'd like to read it because it does explain um, the connection between um, the heat outside and how I feel and what I'm, what I can do. So I guess it's on the envelope part. Absolutely. So let's see here if I can find it. Yellow, red, blue. After Wassily Kandinsky's painting, Tell wrote loud. What's it like to have MS? On good days, I'm the bright young man on the left, able to see and think clearly, riding the blue, yellow, green, and violet auric waves. Though, if I'm outside for more than a half hour, 
A hot summer sun's long, thin, sharp pins can strike and stick in my skull, slur my speech, and drive a red dagger into my head. On bad days, I'm the man on the right, a burgundy silhouette wearing a black visor and a blue suit, my mind skating along two lines, one curling, one straight, that both end in or around a deep blue hole. If I walk without a cane over a later, I sway like a drunk, skim walls, graze door frames, passwords, people's names, what I wanted to do on my computer are all locked away in scrambled Rubik's cubes. On these days, it's best to step away from my desk and rest before I delete or wreck the ineffable yellow, green, red, blue, or violet vistas I may never recreate nor remember. That's wonderful. Thank you. Was the choice of the Netherlands sort of a health-related issue then? Did you find kind of it to be a good temperature for your condition or? Well, I did like the temperature, but the reason I moved there is due to a previous pandemic, the AIDS pandemic. And after I lost uh, about more than a dozen friends and one uh, partner and my job, that beautiful vista outside of my window was a little hard to maintain. So I thought since, and then it turned out to be two partners that died of AIDS, I thought that probably my number was going to be up at some point. So I figured Geronimo into Europe I go with my journalistic quality camera and my teaching degree. and. I'm going to get away from here for a while and see the world. Yeah, so the response to the AIDS epidemic in the 80s in America, um, many would obviously say that it wasn't the best, um, to put it kind of lightly. But so based uh, based on that, the so you're saying that Europe had a much more different approach to it then? Yes, it didn't saturate. Uh, life there. It wasn't on the news every night. Uh, the people that had AIDS weren't seen as morally inferior or socially inferior. They were just people with the disease. And so I could just get on with my life, however long or short it was going to be. So that wanted me to, I wanted to bring the conversation to one um, of the poems that I've been reading by Zahoutelli. Um, so what in this poem you bring up the conversation of wheelchair ex- accessibility within the hotel. It's all about um, how the hotel doesn't necessarily have the capacity for kind of proper wheelchair accessibility. Um, so between America and the Netherlands, which in your experience did you find to be more accommodating? Well, I broke my answer about that into two parts. I uh, felt that both had their strengths, but they also had their weaknesses. So um, I think the Netherlands is more accommodating as far as public transport is concerned. That's your uh, core business here at UBS. But there are public taxis available to transport in every region and province. Uh, However, there doesn't seem to be a unified system of transportation or subsidy for that in the United States. It varies by region and by state. As far as buildings are concerned, the U.S. is more accommodating. More public buildings, government buildings, libraries, churches have accessible entrances. In the Netherlands, they can't do that because many of them are very historic buildings. So uh, there's a law that you can't make a visible change to the architecture. And unfortunately, that uh, restriction keeps a lot of buildings from upgrading to more accessible entrances. Yeah, yeah, and I found that to be I found that to be rather interesting because on the one hand, you know, you obviously want to make a building accessible for everybody. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to somewhere like Amsterdam, obviously they want to preserve the historic nature of the building, and it's an interesting dilemma to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Netherlands, it's easier to get there 
but it's harder to get in. And that in America, it's it's harder to get there, but it's easier to get in once you're there. So that's the uh, difference. Yeah. Um, so America is more accommodating, but kind of due to a lack of public transportation yeah. in a lot of areas. Um, so the more the city has kind of its own public transport, the more likely it's going to be more accessible. Right. Uh, I'd like to come into Cleveland because when I come to the airport, I'm staying in an airport hotel. I just tell them to take me to the airport, and then I get on the rapid. And I went to friends meeting in University Circle on the rapid. Um, got off at the Delphi or whatever that is. It's it's a street with an A name, and it's all downhill because I used to go to CIM. Uh, so Cleveland is a thumbs up as far as I'm concerned for public transport. I went out to see my sister on the county line bus from the 55 and came back and had dinner with somebody on Clifton and Lakewood. So works for me. Is there places you've been in America in particular where you found that it's just sort of inaccessible, both mobility-wise and through the buildings themselves as well? Like, uh, is there areas where it's just like, not only was I not able to get here in a timely fashion, but uh, the building is just absolutely unaccommodating as well? Well, I haven't really had that much problem with buildings. They seem to most of them try to be ADA compliant. But there are places in America, see, everybody drives here. So you have to be in a van or a car. If you don't have sidewalks, someone who's in a wheelchair can't get from where the bus lets them off and uh, where they're going to go. But fortunately, that wasn't the case when I took uh, public transportation in Cleveland. There's plenty of sidewalks in North Olmsted along Lorraine and along Clifton and Lakewood. So that's one thing, you need to have sidewalks. The weather is something that affects me. I cannot be out in the sun. In Utah and uh, Arizona, I went there to visit friends and I felt like there were sparks coming off my back as I was going down the street because the temperatures there and the intensity of the sun are just much greater. So in the Southwest, that's a, a particular problem. And some of my friends have migrated there so if I want to see them, I have to prepare myself. And there's not a lot of cities that have dedicated uh, public transport or even private transport for disabled people. So, so definitely um, one of the things you would want, not necessarily advocate for, but something you definitely think is a plus is just more transportation options for those with disabilities. Right, right. So I wanted to move on to the poem, Here's Something for the Pain. Um, the poem begins with what many would reasonably say is an unpleasant experience with the medical industry. Um, and at the end, you conclude with the lines, there's nothing we can do, here's something for the pain, which seems to express your frustrations with the healthcare industry in general. As you were going through your experiences, what were some of the frustrations you experienced with doctors or with the healthcare system in general? Well, I'll tell you one thing I learned from the AIDS epidemic and going with my friends that had AIDS to a hospital was I learned real quick that just because you're walking towards me wearing a white coat doesn't mean I'm going to agree with you or that you know what you're doing. So that was something I learned in the 80s and the 90s. So it, 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 it served me well when I was an actual patient in the uh, hospital. And they were suggesting treatments. And one of the treatments was with prednisone in an uh, IV. And um, they wanted me to be in the hospital for three days with that. Whereas... Uh, I came for a visit here and saw my physician in the United States. And he goes, you don't have to do that. Here are the pills. Just follow the directions and take the pills. You're, you're good with that. Yeah, I'm good. So I can do my own meds. I don't have problems with that. So that's another thing. Doctors, they sort of try to give a uniform uh, approach to everyone, but people aren't the same. Some people will remember to take their pills. Some people will remember not to do what you tell them not to do, and others won't necessarily. 
Some people won't show up for their appointments at the rehabilitation center. The <laughs> my doctors and therapists there said to me, "You're the only man that's shown up for all his appointments." And I thought, "Isn't that what you're supposed to do? You know, if you want to be the best person or feel the best that you can." But I guess doctors sort of assume the lowest common denominator in order to deliver healthcare sometimes in order to protect themselves and make sure they're covered their bases. Um, I do not hold a grudge against the doctors because they weren't able to diagnose me for years because, as I said, I don't believe they have the equipment nor the training to do it. How, how much time do they spend with doctors talking about multiple sclerosis? It didn't used to be very much at all. And um, the cases, well, my doctor, he's fortunate because he has a father and a son that have MS, and I have MS. So he's got three male patients, which is really a rarity statistically because more women tend to have, women tend to have MS just uh, 10 to 20% more than men do, so. You mentioned the MRI machine kind of being the big game changer for you to able to get a proper diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, would you attribute the MRI machine to kind of figuring that out for you? And do you think your life would be different had it not come about? Yes, I, I do, because as soon as I got the MRI, uh, they sent me home because they said, well, there's nothing we can do for you. There's something to the chain. And from the MRI, they were able to go one, two, three, four. So after 12 scars or whatever it is, you're, you're officially diagnosed with MS. Uh, and then they monitor you for a year also to see if you have a relapse, which I did. So then I got the official diagnosis. At the time, it was quite a shock because I was the head of the department of English, of English at my college. So I was doing these 60 hour weeks and tours with the freshmen and sophomore year students to London and Berlin, London and Dublin. So I had to give that up. I had to go from being the head and working five days a week, lecturing five days a week to three days a week, and then two. And finally, they said, okay, you've given it your best shot and you're only getting worse. So we're going to send you home and on disability. So, yeah, what I don't know how I segued into that part, but that's a very important part of my life. I was an overachiever. I wanted to get things done. I wanted to change things. And then suddenly I had to change into the person who let other people take the decisions and do things for me. And that was quite a transition. I imagine, yes. Um, that kind of does segue into my next question rather well. Then. So going to these experiences, did you ever have any issues concerning like the American healthcare system and insurance? Um, and then kind of piggybacking off of that question, how has how has the healthcare system in the Netherlands been kind of different from the American healthcare system? Well, let me tell you something. This is my experience with the healthcare system in the Netherlands. It's rationed and you have to wait to get to it. But when you get to it, it's very good. I have never had a bill come to my home for any hospitalization, uh, for scans, or for x-rays, or for physical therapy. I have a single-payer insurance, a medical insurance, which everyone in the Netherlands is required to have. So when I go to the hospital, I just swipe my little magnetic card, and I'm done. There's, I just can think about treatment. I don't think about euro signs or anything like that. Oh, how much is this going to cost? Or I had a heart attack, what was it, in 2020, and I called for the ambulance to come. And in America, I've heard people are like, Oh, I can't do that. I'm not covered, or it's eight hundred to a thousand dollars for the ambulance ride. You don't have to think about that. You just call up the ambulance and say, oh, "I'm having a heart attack," and they send somebody over, and within five ten minutes, you've got an infuse in your arm, and you're out the door on the uh, gurney. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. So, so money is not a consideration when it comes to seeing my doctor or getting standard medical treatments. 
Now, when doctors come up with things that are experimental, I have to pay myself like 30000 And I look in the report and I see what the success rate is and how old the people were. Usually, I fall out of that boat because I'm 65 now. So, and I no longer have the labs in the I have secondary progressive uh, multiple sclerosis. So, I've decided not to really go experimental. I just take things for the pain and do my physical therapy so I can keep as much as I have as long as I can. What might be what might a typical physical therapy treatment look like then? Well, hydrotherapies in the water once a week with my gecko shoes on in the pool so I don't fall over. Although occasionally when they ask me to do something, I'm underwater looking up and I'm saying, Oh, there's something wrong with this picture. But I don't panic because the next thing there's somebody jumping in the water that pull me back up. And uh, yeah, I'll do that uh, once a week. And it helps with the pain and it helps with my medication to work better because it, I guess it widens my arteries and veins in the hot water. They didn't even know that that was a good treatment. I started doing that in 2008. There was a paper that came out in the U.S. in uh, 2011 that confirmed that it was helping with some patients. And then when I was in Brazil in 2013. So basically, that's why I'm kind of patient with the medical industry because they don't know a lot of things about MS. They're learning every year new things that they can do to help people. So, you know, I'm willing to try new things, but as far as injections or putting a lot of pills inside of me, I don't know if it's not something for Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned wanting to avoid experimental yeah. um healthcare. Is that and you kind of mentioned your age. Is it just the age or is it just um, looking at the data? What what would determine something experimental? What would you well, well, if they had data, uh, longitudinal data for maybe five to ten years, and they could show definite improvement in people over 60, that would be good too. But usually it doesn't apply to a lot of these new ones that they're trying to do. So, Whether editing your own magazine or growing up in the 80s to even your work in disability literature today, a lot of it seems to be navigating spaces, which you <laughs> manage to do with a style that is all your own. Uh, what are your thoughts in modern spaces in these areas? Um, how do you feel they've progressed, or is there anything you would like to see done differently? Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'm very happy to be here today because I can roll right into the loo, the man's loo, and uh, do my business and roll out, wash my hands, and didn't have to worry about one single obstacle. So I wish all public buildings were like the one here at UBS. How about kind of disability as literature? How do you have you seen that evolve at all? Or yes, I have. Um, I wasn't aware of it that much, and unfortunately, I didn't write the authors' names down for some of the pieces. But I've read pieces by uh, people who have had ALS, and some of the things that they encounter are very similar to what I go through, and. Especially the ALS authors go through the same things. Uh, some people end up still dictating things with their eyes. They just move them to a certain place to spell words out to keep writing. Uh, that's pretty much my kind of uh, take on writing. If I can, I'll, I'll keep doing it as long as I can roll an eyeball in different directions. So I love it. It's what keeps me going. It's what gets me out of bed in the morning. What do you wish you had heard from someone as you were receiving your diagnosis? I would hope that they said, don't lose hope, instead of there's nothing we can do. Here's something for the pain. That's my introduction to being an MS patient. Um, there are new treatments coming along every day, and the sooner that a patient and the patient's doctor deals with it, the less perhaps it will negatively affect the patient later in his or her life. That's how I feel. So if you're a young person in your 20s and you notice that your legs aren't working properly and they do that periodically, go see your doctor and, and find out what's going on. 
so that if it's something that can be stopped in its development, if you're in relapse and remitting, some of those medications that are out now will help you. So don't wait until it's too late. Excellent. And what would you want to say to someone first after they first receive their diagnosis? Uh, there's more of us around. There's all sorts of support organizations that you can contact. Even in the Netherlands, we have an MS association. And I believe there's one in practically every state and many counties in the United States. So get in touch with them and they'll help you. They'll tell you about tra transportation methods for wheelchair users. They'll tell you about rehabilitation centers that you can go to occasionally if you lose the, um, we say the draught in Dutch, if you lose the thread of your life for a while, then these are places you can go and get uh, strategies to keep yourself uh, rolling. Excellent. Um, so if any of our listeners would like to reach out to you, uh, what would be the best way to contact you? Through my magazine, my uh, email address is on the homepage. That's amsterdamquarterly.org. Excellent, excellent. And before we end the interview today, um, just one last question. Where, where can listeners purchase your book on the level of poems on living with multiple sclerosis? Well, they can get them directly through the publisher, Circling Rivers. Uh, my publisher has a website and a bookstore there. They're also available through Barnes & Noble online, Amazon online, Blackwell's if you're in the UK. A um, lot of online bookstores will have it. So if you type in Brian R. Monty on the left, it should pop up. Excellent. Yeah, Brian R. Monty's book, On the Level, Poems on Living with Multiple Sclerosis, is available now, either online. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate you taking the time to sit with us. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. And that concludes this episode of the Kaleidoscope podcast. Join us next time as we continue the conversation. Today's podcast was brought to you by PNC, supporting early education, racial and social justice, and economic development through programming within the communities we serve. Listen, read, share, submit, sponsor, support at kaleidoscopeonline.org.